On 89.9 The Light, it is so good to be having a chat about a subject that I certainly love, uh, but I am promising not to get too geeky completely out of this and too nerdy. Uh, we'll we'll see how we go anyway, because joining us on Zoom is a man who is uh, officially signing up to be our US correspondent for the next few weeks as we head into the US election, Jeremiah Beck. G'day, Jeremiah. Uh, it's good to be back, man. It um, that was an awfully fast and eventful four years since we've last talked U.S. politics. It was indeed. In fact, uh, if you happen to be listening, then uh, Jeremiah joined us for the last few weeks uh, heading into the 2016 election, and uh, what a a ride that was. And it certainly has been pretty full on these last four years as well. Um, Jeremiah, for those who perhaps didn't join us, then tell us a little bit about. Uh, your background, because you've got a, a background in politics, you've got a background in Christian radio as well. Tell us a bit about you. So predominantly got my start working in congressional politics. Uh, for those of you who are really into um, the American political scene, you'll remember at one point the Speaker of the House was Paul Ryan. Um, in 1998, I lived in Paul Ryan's district and worked for his campaign, helped him get elected to his first seat in Congress. I grew up not far from Janesville, Wisconsin moved from electoral politics into political radio, uh, did uh, news talk for seven years, uh, and then transitioned into contemporary Christian music radio and have done that along with uh, nonprofit fundraising work now uh, since 2005. And that's been the bulk of what I've done aside from my natural engaged and continual interest in evangelical politics here in the United States and electoral politics at large. Yeah. And, and you know, as we go through these next uh, few weeks, we might start uh, exploring at one point too how, how your political understandings and where you, you, you situate yourself as well has changed. And I know that you're pretty open about uh, how uh, you look at politics nowadays. But what we're wanting to do is just give people here in Australia and, and especially here in Melbourne just a, an understanding of what it, uh, it is actually happening over in the US election. Firstly, I suppose, um, from this perspective, um, you know, we look at the US election as a really important moment because, you know, leader of the free world is about to be elected. So it does impact us here in Australia. Uh, from your perspective, are, are you looking at it, and I suppose as most Americans looking at it as well, this is the leader of the free world we're, we're electing, or is it somebody who's running our country? And, and, you know, they're obviously very closely joined, but they're slightly separate. Fascinating question to lead off with, actually, because I think it speaks to, in some degrees, the heart of the thing that Americans are often accused of, and that is international arrogance. And so I think on one hand, we don't view it necessarily as we're electing the leader of the free world, because we have almost, since World War II, taken that position in the world for granted. Military might, um, international adventurism, um, but we're also extremely tribal. We're in one of these seasons in the United States politically now, where we've, we've really descended into base tribalism electorally. So the international worldview in, in many ways is downplayed in this last several election cycles and is instead we've elevated a lot of domestic issues. Um, and, and some of those have come to the fore necessarily. Uh, racial injustice has driven the dialogue of the country. And, and that's a discussion that, that is not only ongoing, but really at, at a certain point, we need some resolutions on issues that we've been discussing. 
um, the economics of our nation. Uh, we're in the worst economic condition that the country has been in through most metrics since at the very least the the global market crash of 2007 2008 2009 but all other indicators would say since the great depression of the 1930s um and the coronavirus covid-19 outbreak um and the um and the the handling or the mishandling of it here which has led to 212,000 american lives so internationally issues of of uh, dealing with uh, Russian electoral interference or Chinese aggression on the international scale in regard to market economy military uh, even international global terrorism we don't even we're not really even talking about these issues in this election nearly as much yeah uh, and look this might be a, a separate topic at some later stage too but uh, you know one of the things I've been saying to anyone who listened to me around is that this last year or so has started handing China a bit more of the world leader uh, status. And as we sort of come to the end of a, a COVID situation, however long that's going to be, it it seems like maybe that might be where they're starting to position. So we might get to that in a, a later conversation as we go through. Let's start with a little bit more of an introductory understanding around the Electoral College. Here in Australia, uh, we have uh, one uh, Electoral Commission who actually oversees all of our uh, elections, whether they're federal, whether they're state, whether they're local, ultimately they have to all report into uh, one system. And so it tends to be something that, that that makes sense pretty clearly for those who perhaps don't understand the US system. Uh, it doesn't make as much sense at the start, but as you dig into it, we can understand how it was formed. Could you explain to us a little bit about uh, the Electoral College and, and who's in charge of elections across the United States? Yeah, so the reason the United States electoral process doesn't seem to make a lot of sense is because the United States electoral process doesn't make a lot of sense. <laughs> um, and, and I say that partly tongue in cheek, but also I say that from a from a truly observational standpoint, because the United States was not set up to have a or an electoral process. View the United States more as having 50 elections simultaneously. And that was done for state sovereignty when the United States Constitution was first signed. The, the, the rationale was the empowerment of the state. And so states were given the autonomy to handle their elections and the manner with which they would select electors who would then ultimately cast the vote for the presidency. That was supreme to having a national election. So to explain the electoral college, and the electoral process is to really say, instead of looking at the US as one election, look at it as 50 countries, all voting for one leader of that country, while also simultaneously voting for their representation in the House of Representatives and in the US Senate. The third of the US Senate is gonna be, uh, be up for election at the same time as the presidency, which if you've paid attention to the news and Supreme Court justice nominees is just as crucial or important as the presidency itself. So the who's in charge of the elections, it ultimately comes down to um, local or state secretaries of state. These would be individuals at the state level who are tasked with, and, and they're, they're elected positions, tasked with overseeing to an even more granular level um, county by county election commissioners who oversee voting on a on election day, and then you have county clerks 
who certify the ballots within the different districts of their of their county and then those votes are ultimately certified by the secretary of state and if you remember the election of 2000 and the george bush in florida and the hanging chads and the supreme court vote and all of that the supreme court didn't actually decide the election of 2000 by de facto vote they did because ultimately what they decided was we're done counting votes now in florida bush is ahead and so therefore certify the results and let's move on so you have 50 ultimately you have 50 elected people whose jobs are to certify the election the the election results but when you cast a vote in the united states you're technically not voting for donald trump or joe biden or any number of independent or third party candidates you're actually casting a vote for a slate of electors these are individuals who actually go um i believe the date falls somewhere in early december uh, they actually go and then cast the vote for presidency. And they're actually under no obligation constitutionally to honor the will of the United States people. And there have been times when this has happened. It, there, there was an elector who crossed over in the in 2000. We have a term from them called faithless electors, individuals who, despite what the, the voters say, they decide to vote for whoever they want to vote for anyway. It's very, very rare. But that's um, as simple. <laughs> There's obviously a greater degree of complexity to this even than what I've done, but this is that's sort of the simple overview and the, the weight that states have, the number of electors that they have is based on population. Congressional representation and, and electors are based on population. Yeah. Uh, one sentence summary, which is almost impossible to do, but a group of people decide, okay, majority, we want to vote for this person, but we're going to send one person, for example, to go and vote on our behalf, and and they'll cast that vote. And once you add up all those people, it it should work out to this electoral college that we hear about. You said that it's sort of de designed to be a little bit around um, the the amount of people in each state and those sorts of things. Does the electoral college numbers for each state move? So, for example, I know California has a lot, and Texas have a lot. They have a lot of people. Um, when does that get moved up and down in terms of uh, how many votes each state has? Solidification of the electoral college votes are locked and firm. Um, the, the, there's, there are two states, though, that actually apportion their electors based on um, congressional districts. Uh, all the rest of them, it's all or nothing. So state of Maine and the state of Nebraska are the only two that can split it up. But basically, otherwise, it's all or nothing. You could win California, for example, or the state of Texas, which, you know, I'm trying to give two examples, one side of the political spectrum or the other. Texas is almost always a Republican state. California, almost always a Democrat state. But let's say Donald Trump managed to win the state of California by one vote. He gets the whole shebang. So there is no apportionment uh, of it at all. It's a it's a winner take all environment for the Electoral College is concerned, which mm -hmm. makes um, in some ways the election kind of interesting. Um, but in the other in, in, in another way, it also empowers certain states. They're going to get a lot more visits from the presidency because there's not going to be a lot of campaigning in Texas. There's not going to be a lot of campaigning in New York or California because everybody pretty much knows how those states are going to go but wisconsin or ohio or virginia or florida battleground states as we often refer to them as they get a lot more significant um 
FaceTime with the candidates than the other states would. Yeah. And just to put that into perspective, I think the stat was around uh, 70,000 votes across three states in the 2016 election. Uh, you sort of divvied it across some of those battleground states. And if they'd gone the other way, um, we would have had Hillary Clinton as president for the last four years rather than Donald Trump because of where they fell, those votes. Yeah, Clay, again, misnomer because uh, Hillary Clinton uh, won the national popular vote by one and a half, two percent. She she had millions of more nationally tabulated votes, but ultimately that's an interesting statistic, but it's Nothing. largely yeah, it's, it's irrelevant. Um, but that's where the tribalism in American politics has come from. Um, George W. Bush's political advisor, Karl Rove, began to understand something. In the 1990s, we heard a lot about soccer moms and independent voters and trying to get people in the middle and undecided voters to go to your side or to go to the other side. What Karl Rove began to understand was it's not about convincing undecided voters nearly as much as it is getting larger percentages of your team to come to the polls. And while that led to electoral victories for the Republican Party and then conversely for the Democrat Party under Barack Obama, it leads to greater and greater heated political rhetoric while elevating the stakes of the election because this is more of an intellectual voter turnout model. I mean, uh, an emotional voter turnout model as opposed to an intellectual voter turnout model. You're not trying to convince someone who's undecided by giving them facts, figures, and information about why your candidate is better. Instead, it's how do I make my team deathly afraid of or angry with my opponent? so that they will come out and vote in large numbers. Yeah, and just to reiterate too, for us in Australia, that's also something unusual because we have to vote. By law, we have to vote. Uh, you have to walk in, you don't have to actually mark the, the paper off, but you have to take the paper and you can just shove it in, you can write whatever you want on it, um, but you have to show up for it. So uh, that's a, a whole nother ball game compared to the US obviously, whereas convincing your voters to come out and vote Whereas uh, by law, we have to do that here as well. So another bit of the change and the reason that politics is different in those two places. We're going to be back with Jeremiah Beck. He is our US correspondent for all things the US election. Uh, we're going to come back and talk a little bit more about how this is working, but specifically at uh, the last week or so and the impacts. And we've heard a lot about the debates and uh, President Trump getting coronavirus. How is that impacting the shape of the US election at the moment? That's on the way next year on 89.9 The Light. In conversation with Clayton. 89.9 The Light, you're in community conversation with Clayton. And over these next few weeks, uh, we have going to be joined by this incredible man. He's uh, our US correspondent for all things US elections. He did it last time in 2016 and he's uh, with us again for 2020, Jeremiah Beck. Just a, a I don't great... know if that's a winning thing to say though, Clayton. <laughs> I did it for you last time. You know, there's a great quote um in in u.s media it applied to the 2000 election but it was late at night i'll never forget it i was watching nbc and tom brokaw was on and one of the people was tom brokaw they had declared that al gore had won then they had declared that george bush had won then they declared that florida was actually undecided and no one had won and all of this back and forth and the correspondents were all talking about how the network had egg on its face and Tom Brokaw famously said, we've all been so wrong at this point, I think we have an omelet on our suit. We have so many <laughs> eggs on our faces. So, you know, that was a tough election for a lot of people, 2016, call it a wrong, but um, 
yeah. it's good to be back to share a few other thoughts issues. Exactly. And we want to talk about, uh, you know, what's transpired in this last week or so. But l- let's just stay on that for a moment, because that's also a little quirk that's different to what happens here in Australia. Here in Australia, as we, we mentioned earlier on, we have an electoral commission that oversees all of the elections, and they're the ones that call it. They're the ones that say, we've counted the votes, and they release it to the media, and then the media shares it with the public. Um, and so that's how it actually works. But in the States, it tends to be called by TV networks who are doing exit polling. They're, they're standing and actually asking people what they think. It, the, the times that they call it are not necessarily actually just what the votes are saying. It's sort of this mix of sometimes what they might see here from the, the, the people counting the votes and their exit polls and these sorts of things. And that's a strange thing. But it's already becoming an election issue this year because President Trump's saying, oh, we should have it done by election day because of, you know, we should get an answer. Can you explain that a little bit more for us? Have I described it correctly about what occurs? You, you, you have the, the U.S. media got a little bit arrogant, um, but they have gotten better. Ultimately, the, um, the, the U.S. news media is required to wait until after the state polls have all closed before they can declare, quote unquote, a winner through their observation of exit polling and whatever quantifiable data that they have and and real time ballots. Um, Most states, they're able to do that. The candidate is so far ahead through statistical sampling, they can make the call. States that are closer, they have a tendency now to wait and not make that call until it's quite a bit closer. And frankly, it makes for a little bit more dramatic television. Um, there is the official certification of the results that have to come from the, the secretaries of state in those particular states. So it's almost like we're declaring a winner because this is what we believe is going to happen. It's unlikely that they're actually wrong, but it still comes down to the official certification of the vote at the state level. Yeah, it, but it's almost not sensed like that by the public, is it? Like they, they don't sort of feel like, oh, well, we got to wait until then. Even though that's technically what happens, it yeah. seems to be that most people go off well, they've said it and we're going to do it. You know, this, this is what it, it is. Depends. Um, it, it depends on your political affiliation. <laughs> That's true. Uh, you know, I, um, there, there has been in recent years, especially, I would say since probably 2012 to 2014, maybe, um, there's been a, um, an upset on the part of largely conservative Republican voters that declaring that certain states have been won on the East Coast and in the central time zone of the United States leads to suppressed voter enthusiasm if they're seeing on television that their candidate is losing in states where they've been told leading up to the election their candidate would have no chance if he if he loses. And so there has been this movement to hold off on declaring results in states like Pennsylvania, Virginia, North Carolina, Florida, and Michigan, and Wisconsin, because then voters in other battleground states in Colorado and in Arizona, um, they are like, well, if our candidate has been declared the loser in these East Coast states, why should we even go? And it leads to a cascade effect. Yeah, it's, it's quite remarkable. Uh, let's talk a bit about what's happened this week. Uh, there's been a couple of huge things that uh, have occurred. Obviously, there's in this last week or so, there's the debates. But let's perhaps start with something that was a bit more uh, relevant, which was the President of the United States, after talking uh, a lot and downplaying the coronavirus, uh, has come down with coronavirus and then a whole 
host of people within the White House itself have also now got uh, COVID-19. What has been the ramifications and, and the feeling of that um, for Americans generally? Um, well, because we're in a tribalist period, I don't know that you can say what the general feeling has been of the country. I think on one hand, for people who have gotten maybe they've aligned themselves in the camp of we need to have some stringent guidelines and greater protection, um, mask wearing and, and economic shutdown and quarantines and so forth. Um, they've, they've viewed this as a, um, oh, how would you describe it? A, a predictable result of a president who has seemed to be cavalier with the language that he uses when talking about the pandemic his personal practices of not wearing a mask and holding rallies with his supporters, both indoors and outdoors across the United States. And those in the other side who have viewed this through a prism of anywhere from saying that the, the, um, the economic impact of the shutdowns isn't justified and we shouldn't have done it, or the virus is a hoax, a media creation. It's, it's, it's something we shouldn't even be concerned with at, at all. Um, and so they're treating this as saying, well, see, the president of the United States, he's 74 years old, he caught the virus, he went to the doctor, he's fine. This has all been much ado about nothing. And so you have these two sort of factions where interestingly, one event like the president of the United States catching COVID-19 has actually solidified the positions of people on the polar opposite view of how to handle the global, uh, the pandemic here in the United States. Yeah, uh, my best mate said to me uh, once uh, Trump got COVID, he said like, I reckon this is gonna be used just like this. And I said, no, surely not. Surely, I mean, I've started, I look at it, surely it's not gonna, Sure enough, that's exactly what's happening, that we've got the president coming out saying it was a blessing from God that I got it because I've learned all about this. Uh, we've, we've got all these medicines. We're going to be fine. Um, it, it does seem to have, as you said, polarized even more. So um, rather than necessarily even talk more about the ins and outs of what occurred from an election standpoint, which is why you're on and having a chat to us. Do you think it will make an impact on the way people have voted? We, we do know that really these elections are decided by, you know, the, the estimates are between maybe three to eight percent of people who are actually undecided and, and might swing one way or the other. Do you think it's actually changed their opinion? So opinion, I don't think so. I think there there is such a small percentage of voters who would be considered undecided that this is going to have an impact one way or the other. I think coming into this election, um, they have made up their mind who they're going to vote for. But from an electoral politics standpoint, I think this is interesting. Joe Biden has a financial advantage and his campaign strategy was largely to invest the millions of dollars that he's amassed through this incredible fundraising effort to rely largely on political advertising uh, and get out the vote initiatives on election day. President Trump, however, um, ha hasn't been as, as prolific at fundraising, but he relies heavily on what we call earned media, creating controversial things that lead to the news media and the popular culture simply focusing on it and keeping his name and image in the, in the public square, using his Twitter account, 
to generate controversy and to directly reach his supporters. But here's the part that's interesting. In 2016, and all the way through his presidency, he's relied heavily on energizing his base through in-person rallies in battleground states. And this has directly impeded his ability to travel to those states and to hold rallies. And so I don't think we will be able to effectively evaluate the impact of the president and his team. His, his campaign team, a lot of his key strategists have had to quarantine for seven to 14 days as well um, until after the election because he had planned visits to Florida and Pennsylvania and Michigan and Wisconsin. And quite frankly, as we've analyzed the election of 2016, it was Hillary Clinton's failure to campaign in some of those key battleground states that led to suppressed voter turnout on her side leading Donald Trump to win states that Republicans hadn't won for decades. So he is in because you could make a compelling case because he's been cavalier with his own personal health. He could end up losing the election because he simply caught a disease. He was insistent you wouldn't catch. You just didn't need to wear a mask. And that would be one of the great ironies of, of the campaign. Yeah, it, it certainly would. And uh, as we've said, there's you know, I think the last four years of the, the U.S. Uh, politics has done everything uh, to surprise us on every single level, right? Like the things that were always standard have now been thrown out the window in one sense. So will there still be a few more more uh, twists and turns between now and the election? Yes, sure. there will there probably will be, be a few more twists and turns between now and the end of the day. Yeah, exactly. Spot on, right? We're going to be back with Jeremiah Beck. He's our U.S. correspondent for all things. U.S. elections. We're going to talk a little bit more about uh, what some of the debates actually did and, and the changes that have occurred um, because of that uh, over in the U.S. election here on 89.9 The Light. In conversation with Clayton. 89.9 The Light, your in-community conversation with Clayton. And over these next few weeks, as we lead up to the U.S. election, which is uh, the weekend, or actually it's the day of Melbourne Cup Day to help you understand when that is here in Australia. Uh, we're going to be having a chat to our US correspondent for all things US elections, a great guy, just generally as well, Jeremiah Beck. He's with us. Um, we're talking about this past week. We've talked a bit about um, Trump getting COVID. We've tried to describe what the Electoral College is as best we can as well, uh, Jeremiah. The other big news from the US election this past week had been around the debates. I do say debates because uh, there was one debate with Trump and Biden, which I think probably universally from all sides has been described really as just a, um, well, not a debate, just a, a slanging match. Dumpster and, uh, fire would dumpster be the fire. technical term yep, for it. Yep, exactly right. And and really didn't sort of get to much. And, and you know, President Trump especially seemed to, even from both sides of the aisle, uh, being blamed mostly for the over-talking of what occurred and not really the ability to have that. And then just of recent times, there was actually a vice presidential debate, which normally the, the two vice presidential candidates, they do have a debate. No one really normally cares all that much about it. Um, but in this time where uh, the previous debate was, was just up in smoke, then Trump got COVID, so he can't get out and about. Suddenly this took on a little bit more of an importance. Can you just, your reflections, I suppose, on those debates and and, and if it has um you know, sort of influenced or perhaps what, what, what is the message that is generally being shared uh, throughout the US? We, we understand again, back to that same point that we understand there's camps that are constantly looking at things differently as well. Yeah, um, so my personal impression of the presidential debate between Biden and Trump was that 
the president didn't do himself necessarily any favors, but he solidified the view that he needed to solidify within his core group of supporters, which is basically the news media, the left-wing people in our country, they're all trying to destroy you and there's no one tougher than me. I'll fight anybody, I'll say anything, I'll do anything. I will burn the world to the ground to save what's left of it for you. I, I cannot think that there had been any other, and I use the word very loosely, strategy um, other than that, because there was no effort on the part of the president to provide any details about what he would do in, 20, in 2020 and beyond. There was even no real willingness to engage in what Vice President Biden was saying he would plan to do if he became president of the United States. So there wasn't actually a debate. There was simply one person yelling uh, over the top of another person and launching some very debased personal attacks against the family of the man that he was running against. That's my view. Right-wing people and conservative people were like, yeah, the president will fight anybody and will say anything. We love him. Left-wing people were shocked and saddened and disappointed, and this is the worst that it could ever be. The vice presidential debate, a little bit more interesting, I think we've come to know Pence, and these are two very different personalities. For those who don't know, um, Clayton, I'm, I know you probably know, but um, Mike Pence actually was in our business for many years. He was a radio talk show host in the state of Indiana. Um, and, and so he's very skilled at, um, at rhetorical flourishes because that's what our business requires. Kamala Harris, um, very different style in that she was a prosecutor and has, um, has a litigator's background. And so she approached the debate in, and it was a very different stylistic approach to what it is that they were doing, where in essence you had Kamala Harris vying for the vice presidency, prosecuting, in essence, the failures that she perceived in the Trump administration's ability to manage the economy, to manage the coronavirus response. And you had Mike Pence, who was doing this dance, this political dance, where he was putting the very best sales pitch on what the administration had done for the past four years. If you would have isolated the two people, at no point were they ultimately talking to or debating with one another, though. So what you ended up having were two people oddly behind plexiglass because of concerns that Mike Pence might be a, might be a carrier of the coronavirus, because even still, COVID-19 not being treated with the respect that it needed to be treated within the White House. And so they had to have an extra six feet of distance between them, stringent restrictions on what people could do within the debating hall, and these plexiglass walls between the two of them while they were actually engaging with the topics at hand. But I was kind of disappointed with the moderator of the debate. Susan Page with USA Today, and you could make the case that, you know, she's a, a biased um, moderator because, you know, she's a Nancy Pelosi biographer. Um, you know, there's there's some things that you could maybe call into question if you really wanted to to, to go granular. Just for everybody there, Nancy Pelosi is the current Speaker of the House and a Democrat. So, yeah. Yeah. No, thank you for for uh, for um, resetting that for me, man. Um, but but I think that the that the um, that the questions, um, unfortunately, 
um, they seemed a little bit more esoteric, observational, aspirational type questions. And a lot of the issues that the United States people are largely looking for answers for, which is um, what is the end game for the pandemic response? How are we going to economically recover from something that has devastated us? And there are people in the streets marching, protesting, and in some cities, burning, looting, and rioting because of perceived racial injustice. And so I was disappointed. I think that there wasn't an opportunity to have two very different worldviews on those issues, other than the economic issues, where there was a debate over the taxation method. So what do debates resolve? Well, this isn't Lincoln-Douglas. We're not debating like we did in the 1850s and 60s in the United States any longer. The message ultimately was uh, the camp needed to show, uh, we're going to put the best spin on this, give us four more years, or you've been an utter failure, and the United States, are, are the people are my jury, and I need you to render a verdict of failure on the part of the current regime. Yeah. Um, final thing as we just sort of wrap up, one of the, the very interesting questions that neither would answer was actually about part of the really important job of a vice president, which is the, the concept of if something happens to the president, um, are you ready to step in? Now, arguably, this is more relevant than ever before. We, we obviously don't wish anything to go wrong for President Trump or Vice President Biden, but uh, we've got two of the oldest candidates running. We've got a, a president who's just uh, contracted COVID as well. It, it seemed to be a relevant question to to ask, have you prepared yourself to step in to be president? These sorts of things. They both de very deliberately didn't say it. And obviously you're in a hard situation. You can't say, oh yeah, I've been thinking about that completely. <laughs> um, but but is that something that you think more, I suppose, electorally people are thinking about in that sense? Yeah, I, you know, I, I, when, I, when the question was asked, I, I think I would cut both of them maybe more slack than the average person would for two reasons. Uh, first of all, I sort of view the question as almost like a non sequitur. Yeah. Um, obviously, they've been picked by the president to be their vice president. So the implication would be that they both believe and the person at the top of the ticket believes they could do the job. Yeah. <laughs> so so I think you just you would so that set that aside. And then the second part of it is, do you really would you really feel comfortable talking about the death of the person you're trying to get elected exactly. uh, so so to me that question I, I personally wouldn't have asked the question if i was a debate moderator because they have egos and they're on the ticket and so they're obviously running and they believe in and they whether it's kamala harris in eight years or whether it's mike pence in four they believe that they could be the president so yes they think they could step in and take take on the job. And it's unfortunate that Joe Biden's 77, going to be 78. President Trump, 74, just got coronavirus. I guess we have to think about it, but I, I didn't think the question's super fair. And and I was of the same opinion, actually, because also not only from what you've said there, but the Constitution already has a way of making that happen. You don't need to actually answer it. The more interesting one for me is, perhaps, Jeremiah, is do you think people who are going to walk in to vote are actually influenced currently by the vice presidential um, nominations. And I, I, 
the reason I ask that is that it does seem like, and we're going to talk a little bit more next week about the evangelical influence in, in American politics, that um, Mike Pence seems to be holding that a lot more for a President Trump, Trump for the Republican side of things. And, and uh, Kamala Harris's potential would be the first woman to ever hold the president or the vice presidential office. Um, uh, you know, and the pers first person uh, of, of both Asian and, and African-American descent as well in, in there too. So there's a, a really quite remarkable um, aspect that they're holding different parts of the elements of, of their party in who they are, just in, in the being of who they are. So um, observationally, the, the, um, the role of the vice presidency has evolved dramatically. I would say that the last election where the person who was selected to be uh, on the ticket with someone that actually made a difference would have been the election of 1960, where John F. Kennedy, as a, as a Massachusetts Catholic voter, but a Democrat, needed to carry some Southern states, including the state of Texas, and selected Lyndon Johnson, who was a Texan insider, good old boy, and ultimately Kennedy carried Texas, a state that he vitally needed. Since then, I don't believe that the vice president is ultimately responsible for carrying states, nor are they even ultimately responsible for carrying voting blocks at this point. I think the vice president's job now in the political world is to carry the president's water to do the dirty jobs politically that the president himself can't do in the case of Joe Biden. Um, in the case of Donald Trump, he wants to carry his own water politically and do the ugly, vicious political attacking. He likes it. Mike Pence is responsible for doing the dirty work of governing. So that's what the role of the vice president is. Does it actually motivate voters one way or the other? I'll be honest with you, I've not spoken to a single person in the entirety of this campaign who's ever said, man, I wasn't going to vote for Donald Trump, but that Mike Pence really wins me over. And the same with Joe Biden. I've not met a single Biden supporter who says, you know, it was Kamala Harris who won me over. Mm. I, it's ultimately you're voting for the person at the top of the ticket whose vision is being cast. And the vice president is, even if they're of a different mind, not going to do anything other than espouse the vision of the person at the top of the ticket. Yeah. Uh, what a brilliant way of describing it. I hadn't heard it like that, the carrying water analogy. I think that is so spot on, Jeremiah. That is wonderful. Thank you. It helped me understand it more as we go through as well. Um, Jeremiah, we're going to leave it there for this week. Next week, just a couple of small issues that I thought we might talk about. Uh, understanding evangelicals sort of generally and how they influence the US election and talk about racial injustice in the, in the US. So, so just a couple of minor issues, you're right with just small, small things. We, we will focus on that because obviously that is two huge parts of what this US election is and, and we're having a bit of fun, but clearly that is gonna have an impact as we go forward. Jeremiah, thank you for so much of your time. Uh, we love you, mate. We'll chat to you next week. Thank you. It's an honor to be a part of it.